Okay, and now we've got another special little segment to give to you while this is going to actually come out while I'm at Gen Con, myself and Jordan are at Gen Con, but we want to provide you with content while we're gone, especially if uh, you are unfortunately not at Gen Con with us, or if you are and you're walking around with this and listening to it, that is so cool, come find me and let me know, (laughs) but I am going to be talking with... Who do I have on Skype today? I'm Ted Osbach. I'm the owner of Bezier Games and the designer of a bunch of different games, including Suburbia, Ultimate Werewolf, Mutant Meeples, and You Suck. Ouch. <laughs> you, you didn't have to get personal at the end, Ted. <laughs> no, yes, this is, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. So you said you listened to a couple things, so you may be ready for this, but are you ready for the uh, questions that we do have canned that we ask everybody? Sure. Okay. You kind of said uh, what you run right now, but let's just go with uh, Ted. What are you gonna say is your profession right now, or what? What's the top, what's your top hat right now? Yeah. Well, my my real job is unfortunately not board game design. I would love for that to be the case, but uh, right now my my real job is product management. So I do product management for. I, I live in the the Bay Area in California, and I've done product management for various companies like Adobe and Intuit, and uh, that's that's my day job. And what makes you a geek, sir? Well, aside from the the obvious uh, board game obsession that I'm sure most of your listeners have and share with me, my wife and I have about 25,000 comic books in our bedroom, uh, all ordered very, very nicely. About 90% DC, about 5% Marvel, and about 5% independent. And uh, that's that right there, even if we didn't have the gaming thing going on for us, kind of pushes us right over the edge, I think. Man, Jordan is probably wishing he wasn't on vacation right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this would take a whole new uh, spin. He'd probably uh, hit you up on the comic stuff for a while. All right. Uh, one that I've recently started asking, we tend to like to promote the fact that you can geek out and be passionate about just about anything. So do you have some type of passion you consider a geek passion that maybe somebody else might not put into the geek category? Yeah, you know, I actually thought about this, and I don't think so. I think most, almost everything that I have or that that my family and I do is pretty much a route that people would consider geek-like, whether it's, you know, a love of sci-fi and fantasy shows and movies, um, uh, superheroes, comic books, board games. Um, that is, you know, that pretty much eats up all of our time. We don't have a lot of time for anything else. So I think they're all geeky things, unfortunately. Or fortunately. Uh, yeah. There's no, let's not go unfortunately here. That, that, that's not the message I'm trying to send either. <laughs> no, that's great. So you have a fully geeked out family, huh? I, I do. Within our family, even on the, the tech side, um, you know, all, uh, my daughter and my son both have, they have iPads. My, you know, we sat around this past weekend playing Artemis, which is that, that really fun uh-huh, uh, yeah. uh, spaceship bridge simulator game. We, we've done that a couple times, and that was a Saturday night. And my kids are teenagers, and my son did mention, "Hey, this is Saturday night, and we're sitting in the the family room playing a spaceship simulator." But and then he went right back to saying, "Okay, watch out! Um, you know, we've got an enemy at this coordinate, and this is the the level that your kill needs <laughs> to be at in order to defeat him." So uh, it was a little bit of self awareness, but then he went right back to uh, geekiness, which was good. Great. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things I kind of find it in, uh, or I find kind of interesting is that you've written a lot of books or helped write a lot of books, and it's mostly around the uh, art side or the uh, illustrator side, that kind of stuff. Yes. 
and and that's kind of part of your your day job, correct? I mean, is that where some of that comes from? Of, um, you know, I, I did most of those. You know, it, it's a ridiculous number of books, and that was kind of my full time job for most of the '90s. And that's actually what led me into product management, getting uh, work at Adobe in particular, because I'd written so many books on their products. Um, I had already was kind of keyed up and ready to go in terms of helping them manage their illustrator and uh, eventually their creative suite products. So I'm going to skip the first question that came into my head. I'm going to ask you the second one. <laughs> so writing the, all those kind of books and uh, a fair amount of them look like they are, are more of the technical or kind of the technical side of the products that you wrote for, correct? It's definitely. They're the, you know, the, uh, the, the Bible books. I've done the, every edition of the Illustrator Bible, um, Illustrator for Dummies, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Photoshop. They're basically how-to books on mostly graphics and design applications. All right. So writing that, that amount of books and then eventually getting into game, the game uh, design side of things, does that make you a rule wizard? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's funny. I just put up the uh, the rules for Suburbia Inc. up on BoardGameGeek as a preview for people to, you know, provide feedback to you know, catch any little things that myself and the people I have looking at improving. And it's amazing how many things were found in just it was like a week. You know, probably twenty things that I missed. So I think in terms of and part of it was um, you know getting things right in, in terms of the logic of everything, but it's also the, the proofing, the editing. The oops, I was a little inconsistent here and there. And uh, the one thing that people don't realize i think as a writer you have editors and you know as a writer you tend to well i wouldn't say hate your editors but they're they're an annoyance they're kind of in the way but they make your product much much better and uh you know i definitely rely very heavily on those folks to do the proofing and you know um you know i love to hear when there's writers they go through seven or eight drafts before they turn something in that's not me you know i'll do a draft i'll turn it in and then i'll get a whole bunch of red marks back and and uh, i really like that because it doesn't make me go through the same stuff that I've already written. And uh, the way the rules work, you know, I certainly will read things dozens of times and rewrite things again and again. But I really rely on playtesters and other folks to give me that feedback to make sure that things are are working correctly. But yeah, I, I love writing rules. And that's the very first in, in the, the process of de designing the game. The very first thing I do is write what I'm calling now kind of a concept sheet. But it really is. It's the first draft of rules. Well, that's kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are other people. I just don't think I've I've talked to anybody I know for myself personally, you know, it's, it's the whole, yeah, this game, this game is awesome. If I didn't have to write the rules. <laughs> yeah, no, for, for me, I, I don't think there's anything I've ever play tested with anybody before I've, I've written at least fundamental rules that and part of it for me is that there's so many different things I keep doing coming up with that I would forget, you know, I, I would, I would play it. And then, you know, if I don't, if I wouldn't write the rules down immediately after playing it, I would totally forget by the next time things came around. I was just looking at some notes I had on uh, Sperbia Inc. that were from the middle of last year before Sperbia was published. And, you know, I was thinking along a totally different line at that time. And it's really interesting to think how things evolve over time. And if I hadn't captured different iterations of the rules, um, you know, I would, I would totally never remember that I went down that path and I might go down that path again until I realized, wait a minute, this is a little too familiar. This didn't work for some reason, but now I have that, that little history of all these rules iteration around. Maybe this hasn't happened to you, but, uh, I know it happens to a lot of people, myself included. So what's your thought process or what's your feeling? Uh, when you post something like, okay, here's the rules. Uh, please take a look at this. And somebody gets a correction for you, like within the first five minutes. You know, it's, there, there were two, I think, with Serbia Inc. that were, they were just stupid spelling errors. I mean, they were really obvious ones too that I, 
you know, I'm like, how is this possible that I read this thing? You know, I, I go through it again and again and again, trying to fine tune it. I have other people looking at it. I have, uh, you know, uh, right now for Suburbia, I've actually, I hire a developer, Dale Yu, uh, who did the development for Dominion. He's been doing the development for Suburbia and the expansion. And, uh, you know, he's a good rules reader and he gets back to me on stuff. And then I have a translator who's translates the, the stuff and he looks at the stuff ahead of time and gets back to me feedback. So by the time it gets out in front of other people, you know, with outside of my little circle of people that I, I tend to play test with, it should be pretty solid, you'd think. But yet there's, um, it's amazing how many little things there are. And, that's actually not too bad. I think that the, that I, I, you know, I'm always like, oh, I can't believe I, I did that. But much, much worse is when you actually get the first copy of a game in shrink wrap, you open it up and you, you turn to the first page and there's a typo and you're like, Oh my God, how is this at all possible? And that I'm now seeing it, you know, now I see it in this, in this finished form where I couldn't see it before. And that has happened way too often. It actually even happened with suburbia. There's a one tiny little typo on the very front page where it says, do this for two players, do this for three players, and do this for, and there's no, nothing there, and it just says players. And it's, it's obvious it means four players, but it's missing a number four. And I'm like, how it, it's on the front page, at the top. And, and as soon as it was, uh, the roles were posted, I think people caught that, but they had already been off to the printer at that point. And, uh, you know, little things like that. Where I'm like, ah, I can't believe that, you know, you miss these things um, after so many iterations and, and you go through the rules so many times. It's amazing. But obviously you get you get that. Uh, I've looked at this so much. I know what it's supposed to say kind of yes. thing, which I'm a programmer by trade. So we we do that as well. It's like, why is this code not working? And you you can either you always call somebody else over because that's the person that's going to go, hey, idiot, how come you're not seeing this right here? And I do it with my coworkers and my coworkers do it with me. Otherwise, like you said, you get the game so much later, you haven't looked at it for a while. <laughs> so you get, yeah, you get that rule book out and get it on, uh, out of the shrink wrap and there it is right there. Same thing. It's like, uh, I'll come back three days later. I've been working on a problem three days later, have to leave it over a weekend. Come back Monday. It's the first thing I see. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is kind of it's it's amazing actually, um, and that's that actually works with game design too. There's a lot of things where something doesn't work with a game, and I can't you know I'll sit and I will stare and I will just focus and do everything I can to possibly come up with a solution for fixing this one little problem that's preventing this game from moving forward, and uh, nothing will happen. I'll put it aside. I look at it you know a few weeks, a few months, even a few years later, and right away it seems so obvious, you know, everything falls into place and I just couldn't see it. I was so close to the project before you, you couldn't see it. So that's a, a very interesting psychological um, uh, profile, I think of the way that creators work um, uh, in their, in their work. So let's go from, I guess my question is, is kind of, kind of going to be, you know, we've talked about you're doing product management and you've written these books and it may not be a, a mutually exclusive shift, but how did you go from that to saying, uh, let me start designing games? Actually, you know what? Before that, how did you go from, I'll let you tell me the, the timeline, the, the proper timeline, but how'd you go from that to comic strips and or designing games? <laughs> well, the designing games is something I've done since I was little. Um, you know, of course they're, I love playing games as a kid and you design a bunch of little things and, and they're, you know, if I still had them, I'd probably look at them and realize that they're terrible. Although there might be some good ideas there. Who knows? But I never was really serious about it. It was more of a fun sort of thing. And I think certainly probably throughout the nineties, I was more like having fun doing, you know, designing party games and, you know, the, the sort of things that you'd find in you know, the kind of the, the crappy party game aisle in uh, Barnes and Noble or something. 
And, uh, you know, I was like, I can do one of these because these aren't that good. I could do one better. And uh, so that was kind of my focus until I discovered, you know, kind of more modern games um, around 2004. And then my focus changed to uh, to that particular area. But I had been designing all sorts of games. They just weren't in the same area that I'm in right now. And uh, by 2004, so uh, once I discovered these games, besides having the sickness that many of us have, that when we discover Board Game Geek and you know, the, the, the list of 100 games that are at the top and you don't have almost any of them and you decide you need all of them right now, which I, I don't understand why that happens, but it does. It happened to my friends. It happened to me. You know, you go on this crazy buying spree and the online resellers love you for it. And, uh, then I started working on other designs and, uh, I'd say, I think it was 2006 is when I started the comic strip. You know, again, it was, I've got uh, all these, interesting ideas and tidbits about games and I want to share them somehow. And so I started the board to pieces comic strip and uh, kept that up for about seven years. And then uh, finally at least put it on hold, at least for now while I'm working on more game design stuff. But uh, that, uh, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun to do. I really enjoyed doing that. So you started designing games. What made you decide to start looking to get games published first? Let's start there. Yeah. So probably the first thing I ever sent into a publisher uh, and I need to talk to James about this. I've, I've gotten to know him a little bit, uh, was to cheap ass games. And, uh, because, you know, they were kind of before my big Euro game introduction was, uh, cheap ass games and Steve Jackson games. And I was, you know, very much aware of those. And, uh, I sent in this horrible, horrible prototype to Steve, or to, uh, James Ernest at cheap ass. Uh, it was called Road Rage and it was, it was, it was a dice rolling game. I mean, it was really bad. Um, and not that dice games are bad. I'm just in this particular case, it was bad. I wish it really, I, I'm embarrassed to have sent it to anybody because, you know, I was like, oh, this is really fun. It's engaging. And I, of course I look at it now and it's, 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 it's atrocious. And then, uh, not long after that, I kept on having, you know, I was really building up a library of, you know, what I thought at the time were fairly advanced prototypes and well-tested prototypes. Uh, my first real interaction besides the cheap ass one was with days of wonder and, uh, you know, for good or for bad, uh, Eric and Mark over at uh, Days of Wonder, you know, I sent them a, a thing on their or online submission form. You know, I sent a thing said, hey, I've got these these games I think you guys might be interested in. Eric responded because we had a similar work history. We both had done work for a, a company, uh, the same company, the same software company. And uh, so that was mainly the main reason that he said, okay, because he wanted to see what I was doing in game design now that we had both worked at a similar company, even if we weren't there at the same time, but we had that similar work history. And so that was the thing that got me in the door there. And they're right up here in Los Altos, which is 20 minutes away from me, the world headquarters of Days of Wonder, uh, which is this uh, amazingly small office that, you know, everyone thinks it's this big giant skyscraper. <laughs> They've got minions everywhere. Uh, I think at the time, and this was 2005, I think there were maybe four people in the office total. And, uh, or three people. I think it was, it was three people because I was the fourth to uh, help them play test the, the games that I brought over. So they had me over one afternoon. I showed them, uh, four games. One of them, oddly enough, turned into Seismic, which was my first published game. Um, and, uh, Atlas ended up picking that up. And that was one that they actually liked. But the one that I had my hopes pinned on, they were incredibly gracious about. And, uh, I actually think there's some hope for it in the future, but not what I presented to them. And it was, uh, kind of trial by fire going into their office, sitting down with them. They're great, great guys. They were super supportive. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, as I look back now, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed and I wish I had saved and waited until I had better stuff to show them. And, uh, I, I've actually never submitted anything to them again since then, which is, it's kind of funny because there's possibly some things I have that might actually fit now as a Days of Wonder game, so I don't know. But uh, that was my introduction to 
publishing and, uh, you know, right, getting things out there. And I think shortly after that, I went to uh, Gen Con. That was the first time I've been to Gen Con in uh, 2005. And I took those same sets of games that I'd taken with me to Days of Wonder, armed with the feedback that I'd gotten from the Days of Wonder guys. And I went around and showed those, those uh, four or five games to a bunch of different publishers. One of those was Atlas Games, which ended up publishing Seismic. And so that actually ended up working for me. As an interesting thing about all things come around uh, this year, um, as we have a booth now at Gen Con for the first time. And uh, I am participating in this this very cool little event that's being put on by Minion Games called Publisher Speed Dating. A bunch of designers um, are going to be presenting their prototypes to different publishers in five-minute increments. And, you know, it's a, kind of a super fast thing to see if there's something that may, might fit in, you know, your particular line. And so, you know, they've lined up, I think it's 50, 60 different game designers and, and po- possible titles. And there's, I think, 20, 30 different publishers that are involved with this. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, I think, a really good way to get past the, the situation I was in, which was going to the booth, trying to find the right person, you know, begging and pleading for them to sit down for 15 minutes so I can kind of run through as fast as I can all the different you know, games that I have uh, lined up, see if they're interested in anything. James has been putting together some really great events uh, over at Minion Games. Between the the one you were just talking about that's going to be at Gen Con and the Proto Spiel events, mm-hmm. um, he's just he's doing a, a lot to help out the small guy, the indie guy, the the people that are still looking for publishers and stuff, and, and giving them a nice forum for getting stuff tested and, and presenting. And so it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's great. And Atlas Games is uh, in my neck of the woods. <laughs> They're local here in Minnesota. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Of Atlas, they were, again, it was, it was great working with, you know, I really haven't found any of the, the people that I've worked with in terms of the game industry to be unfriendly, but Atlas is a great example of, you know, John and Michelle Nephew, the people who run it. They're just awesome. They're, they're, they're great. They provided great feedback. They were incredibly um, helpful for a first time game designer. And, uh, you know, I know uh, they're actually, I think, taking part in the, uh, the speed dating uh, event uh, as well. So, um, you know, that's, they were, they were great to work with. It was a great, great intro to have uh, a publisher like that on my side, uh, with a game out there. So that was, that was a great experience. So you've talked about all of these, uh, games that you're kind of embarrassed, at least at the time about, uh, submitting and, and working on coming from somebody who's got some really great games out right now. What kind of advice around that aspect of gaming and, and seeking publishers and early, early games would you give to somebody coming up in the indie world right now? Um, you know, I think the one thing that I've seen, cause I get a lot of submissions, um, from designers and a lot of people talk to me both at, at shows and, you know, uh, through email. And, uh, the one thing that I see all the time, which is, you know, and it, it's, it's probably less frustrating for me than it would be a larger publisher. It just doesn't have as much time. I mean, I've got a little more time and I'm always interested to see what new things might be coming out is that it's very, very obvious to publishers when games have not been fully play tested. And, uh, it's, it's really, I, I know as a designer, um, you know, when I'm working on a game, you know, I, I know there's a game I've been working on, uh, that earlier this week that I'm really excited about. And I'm like, oh, this has such potential and it's, it's great. And, uh, you know, doing all these iterations on it. But at the same time, I realized that that, uh, excitement is confined to, you know, my vision of where this game could be eventually and, and what's going to happen to it. And, I never had that particular perspective before. I think every game I worked on before I thought was going to be great. And I didn't give it that 
um, it will eventually will be great. It was like, it's great now. Um, it just needs, you know, nice bits. It needs, you know, and then it's, it's going to be good and people are going to love it. And, uh, it's going to be a fantastic game. And a lot of it has to do with, with, uh, playtesting, not just to find, and I, I think people playtest for a couple different reasons. I'm always playtesting to, um, kind of get that feel for when players are done. Do they want to play again? Cause for me, that's, that's the hallmark. That's the thing right there. When someone's, when they're done playing, they go, you know, we have this open. Could we just give it another shot? Cause I want to try this strategy or I want to try this out or I'd like to see if this works. That right there means, okay, this is, this is going to be something that, that might be able to be published. If I have to drag comments out of them, if I have to go, well, was there anything you didn't like about it or anything you did like about it? And they're not open to talking about that right away. Then I realize, hmm, there is a, either needs a lot of work to be done on this or maybe it should be shelved for the time being. Maybe it's just not, you know, ready for, for more feedback. And, uh, that, that, that feedback, that playtesting feedback, whether it's, you know, finding things that are broken, which is, which is good, but it's really more about understanding how people are viewing the game and how they're, you know, what is about the game that they're enjoying and, and they're having fun with. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think certainly as a designer, well, as a creator of anything, uh, anytime that someone criticizes your work, uh, it's hard not to take that personally. And I know I have, my best friend is brutal with me. He, basically goes and says, you know, that this just didn't work for me. I didn't get it. I don't know what's going on here. What were you thinking? But he has much more focused terms in terms of the point system doesn't make any sense. I'm getting points for things that I don't want to do, you know, things things that I don't want to hear, but are really great for me to hear because, you know, he's he's not putting a filter on for me. Whereas, you know, other people in my playtest group, they have different types of, of responses and I've got to make sure that I understand. Are they, you know, I know some people I, they play stuff with, they're always excited. They're like, oh, this is fun. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad you liked it, but you're, you know, unfortunately not indicative of, you know, folks in general. Um, and, uh, you know, once you have a game published out there and you see those people who rate your game as a one, and I, I don't think I've had any game out there that somebody hasn't rated it a one for whatever reason, you know, just bizarre reasons. They decided their own personal scale. They, they rate, rate games as they rate it backwards and board game deep or whatever it is. That's a lot more painful to see a lot of those comments than it is during the playtesting period. Uh, because then it's out there that you can't change it. And if a bunch of people are saying, Hey, I would like this if it wasn't for X or whatever. And, you know, you might have heard that during playtesting and you ignored it because you thought the game was, was fine as it was, or you never even playtested it to the point where you were getting that feedback. Uh, that's when you can run into problems. So I think uh, for me, playtesting before you get it to a publisher, get it to that point where you think that, you know, if you put it out today with good art, it would get that positive response because, you know, there are no, there's no gaps. There's people who want to, you know, that has replayability. You know, that's really important. And, uh, I think another part of the playtesting thing that's really important is playtesting with a wide variety of folks. Um, I have a core bunch of people that I'll, I'll run things through and playtest things with, uh, outside of my family. I'll always spring stuff on my family first. They're the guinea pigs, unfortunately for them. Um, but outside of that, I've got a core group and that'll work through things and get things going. But right after that, I'll start expanding out to other gamers in the area that I occasionally interact with and, and play with. And get their feedback. And that's incredibly helpful. The, the wider net, the widest net you can cast in terms of playtesting and getting feedback, the, the better. And then when it's submitted to a publisher, you can really tell. And, uh, you know, what it's, it's not about the rules. It's not about the components. It's really about kind of the, the flow of the game and kind of how it works. And you can tell, you know, if a game has gone through those, those steps usually. So when I see things and I'll read through rules or I'll, you know, try to play a, uh, you know, a round of a game that someone sent me, you can usually tell right away if, 
if it's got that level of polish and that level of playtesting in place already. You're kind of giving us pieces of this. I just want to see if we've missed anything in it. You've talked about how you like to start with rules and and the playtesting aspect and stuff, but when when you decide that there's a game, like, I really need to work on this game. This This is a game that I want to see get published. Uh, do you have a set process that you go through, or does it depend on the game? You know, it probably depends on the game a little bit, but in general, there is a process, and it's something I probably should write down and actually remind myself about so I don't skip any steps. But, you know, I can probably run through it for you really quick. It's First of all, it's, it's writing down the concept. And it's interesting because I'll, I'll think of something. I'm driving, driving to work. I'm in the shower doing something. And I'll think, Oh, that sounds really interesting. I may or may not write it down at that point. Usually it takes me one or two of those sessions to be like thinking, Oh, wait, now that is really interesting. After that, I'll write it down and write down the concept. And as I write that down, I'd say 50% of those ideas get trashed because as I'm writing it, I'm writing this kind of this overview of how the game would work. I realized that, oops, this, you know, sounded like a great idea, but it just, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, it just, it, it can't possibly work. Uh, of the 50% that are left then after that, that's when I'll go ahead and I'll, you know, I'll maybe throw some, uh, components together and actually, you know, look at the mechanics and see, you know, maybe run through a round all by myself to see if those mechanics are working. If they are, uh, and again, this probably whittles it down. 50% of them go away at that point. If they are, then I'll go to that next step, which is writing up what I would call the, the first real draft of the rules, which is, you know, all right, if I was going to hand this off to someone, these are all the steps. And I mainly do that just because, as I said, you know, I've got so many different ideas that when I come back to something later, I need to read those rules and understand, you know, what I was actually going for, because uh, I'll never remember, you know, I might have some vague idea of how it's supposed to work, but I'll never remember all those little niggly things that I've, you know, worked out in the in the original design process. So I'll, I'll write down the first draft of rules. Then I'll do another uh, round of self-test using those, you know, whatever, you know, a billion different playtesting um, components, bits everywhere. And, uh, you know, make sure that nothing is broken since I've refined things. Maybe adjust the rules a little bit. And then if I'm still interested and intrigued by what I'm doing, then I'll actually make a, a real set of playtest components, which for me, because I have the, the background in Illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign, you know, I tend to spend way more time than I should making them prettier than they should be. But, you know, for me, that's part of the process as I'm designing something like that. You know, and I certainly did that with, with Suburbia. I went through multiple iterations of the way the tiles look. Um, and then they ended up getting trashed eventually anyway when I hired Lookout to, uh, you know, do the graphic art on it. So, uh, but, but as the process, it actually helped me because I helped, you know, think what's important here. Is the price of the tile important? Is it the reputation income change? Is it this conditional statement that's important? How are those all balanced relative to each other? And as I do that, I end up tweaking the rules and tweaking how the game works a little bit. Once I have those components, I'll do what I would consider real uh, self-playtesting, which is, you know, I basically set up pretending to be two, three, four, five players, uh, however many the game needs, or I think it's the appropriate amount, and run through a bunch of those self-playtests. And uh, that's where, again, a n- number of games just die. You know, I've spent all this time with components. I really thought about the game. But when you actually get it to a place where it's sort of pseudo playtested, then a lot of games fall apart or they're just, you know, like, uh, I've hit a wall. I can't go any further at this point. If it makes it past there, then usually there's revision of the components um, based on that, that self-test. I'll realize there's a bunch of things I need to change, updating the rules. And then I'll start, um, you know, in on the family. You know, I've got my wife's a gamer, which is awesome. Um, she is always up for trying stuff. And uh, I subject her to 
pretty much everything that makes it past that process. And um, so she's awesome that way. And then uh, if it makes it past her, I'll usually drag the kids in. They're, they're, they don't tolerate as much, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, they'll, they'll go through one round, see how that works. Uh, you know, again, with real people versus yourself, another whole set of things, issues come up probably. Uh, you know, timing, uh, a bunch of things I hadn't thought of. My son loves to break games. One of the the first things he did um, in an, another game developing that's kind of a bigger game like Sur- Suburbia was he found a way to basically, you know, exploit one of the rules. And uh, he did this, won the game, and I'm like, okay, you know that was an exploit that I'm going to fix, right? And he goes, yeah, but I won, you know, and <laughs> but but I hadn't thought of it, and he thought of it, and uh, when uh, it actually came up later in playtesting, someone said, can I do this? And I said, no, because that would unfortunately break the game. There's a rule that, that says you actually specifically cannot do that. And uh, so I find out a lot of things, you know, in those tests. And again, does the game survive or not? If it does, another components revision, then it's it's to the, the you know, the closer group of uh, of gamer friends that I have and put it out in front of a, a couple of those. A lot of times I'll like to have them play and I'll watch at that point. That'll be the first time I'll have other people play without me playing so I can see what they're doing and kind of watch them go through the process. And I don't have to think about my turn and what it is that I'm doing. Uh, and I can provide some really good insights, you know, and then that just continues until it goes to, you know, more and more people eventually, you know, blind tests in front of uh, random people at, at uh, different shows and conventions um, and to the point where I think it's really polished. And then it's either, you know, at this time, I probably know if it's something that I want to publish myself or if I want to submit it to another publisher uh, for publication. And then I'll, I'll go ahead and make that move. That kind of brings me to another question I want to ask you. Most people tend to want to fall on one side of the fence or the other, or they tolerate that other side of the fence. But what made you decide to go from just designing to designing and publishing games? You know, part of it is the fact that for for other publishers, it's really about timing. Your game can be really, really good, and a publisher will say no to you because it doesn't fit their particular line, their vision, or it just doesn't fit into their schedule at this point. And uh, it might be a perfect game for them, just not right now. And, you know, there's a lot of that, unfortunately, um, for a designer. And and a publisher is never going to take the time to say, well, actually, that's not true. Sometimes they do. Most of the time they do. Most of the time they will not say, hey, uh, you know, this game would fit in our line. We just, we already have a game that's similar to this or, or whatever. More often it's, it's, um, I'm sorry, we're not interested in publishing at this time. And the designer doesn't really know why. And I was certainly getting a lot of the, that feedback uh, from different games that I had out there. And at the same time, I was doing things like I was, you know, once I had a seismic out there, I think at that same time or right before that, I had published a uh, an expansion to Age of Steam because I could, I could, you know, as a the graphic design is really straightforward for something like that, and it was easy to do. And I talked to John Bohr, who owned pseudo owned, I guess you'd call it, the the license to Age of Steam. And I talked to Martin Wallace, who also pseudo owned the the thing, and found out what the requirements were to do an expansion. They said, "Sure, go for it." And I was going to Essen, so I brought a bunch of copies. I sold them there. It was awesome. And uh, you know, I like that that um, you know that whole doing the design, doing the publishing. And, uh, starting to market things. And I started out really, really small. Um, you know, that first expansion, there were, I think, 50 copies maybe of that, that very first, uh, the Bay Area expansion for Age of Steam that I sold at Essen. And, uh, after that, I started doing, uh, Start Player and, uh, the first version of Ultimate Werewolf. And those were all done by hand. They were done. I have a commercial grade, uh, printer 
that prints out, you know, amazing looking things on, on heavy cardstock. And, uh, there, everything was printed and cut myself and packaged myself. And, you know, the packaging is, it's terrible. It's ugly. It looks very homemade, but I was doing it all myself and it was very low risk. I wasn't, you know, putting a lot of money out there for a print run of anything because it was all kind of one-offs. You know, I would do a couple dozen at a time and people would buy them slowly over time or take them to a trade show and they would get sold. And, uh, that was working. And uh, when I finally made the leap, in, I think it was 2007 to, uh, both real Age of Steam boards, which were, you know, printed at Lunafax in Germany. And they were actually, you know, the actual game boards that you, you most, most games are printed on, as well as, uh, a couple other games, including the, the first version, real version of Ultimate Werewolf. You know, I had actually amassed a little bit of a, a treasury from my self-publishing, my, you know, tiny little, um, on-demand publishing. So that it wasn't a huge risk. It was still a risk because if no one bought those things, then I would be out the money of the print run. I would be stuck storing these things and, and that sort of thing. But that worked. And, uh, you know, I slowly went from those expansions and those small boxes and, uh, you know, maybe one, it's pretty much one game a year, most years until last year. And then last year I had two big games, uh, Mutant Meeples and Suburbia uh, come out. And then this year, um, there's three larger games and a bunch of other expansions and things. So the, uh, uh, Ultimate Werewolf uh, Inquisition, which is not my design, it's actually Legend Dan Hoffman's design, which is just a you know, phenomenal game, and I'm really excited to publish it, uh, as well as You Suck, which is a, a smaller card game type that I'm used to publishing, and uh, also the expansion to Suburbia, which is pretty big. And, uh, you know, I'm going forward, I'll probably be publishing more games from other designers as well as my own, and uh, trying to figure out how I can fit them all into the schedule, because I have a whole bunch of things I want to do, and um, there's only... Only so much room right now in the schedule for doing them. I heard you say that you uh, enjoy the publishing side, but is there a, an aspect of it that you really enjoy? You know, I, I, I think part of it comes down to the fact that, you know, I've been in product management now for, you know, 15 some years and I'm used to that whole, you know, working with all sorts of different folks across an organization in order to get a project done. So when you're publishing, you're doing exactly that. You're, uh, working with a designer, which in this case is, is myself most of the time, although I've worked with other designers. Um, it's working with an artist. It's, you know, working with a manufacturer in terms of getting, um, you know, quotes and finding out, you know, the, the best way to publish something, what size box and, uh, you know, the, the types of, of components that are going to be in there, whether they're wood or plastic or cardboard. All of that is kind of engaging. There's, there's something about going through that process and figuring it out and uh, coming up with, you know, uh, you know, what, what could I possibly, how cheap can I get this? What can I sell it for? And then, uh, you know, uh, marketing, you know, getting it out there in front of people and, um, you know, designing the box cover and uh, all that fun stuff. You know, that's that I, I really enjoy. You know, it's, I go back and forth between game design, you know, game design to me is, it's very much like, um, software development in that you're kind of in your own little world for a while. You're working on something, working on something, and then you spring it on people. And you get back. And, uh, there's a, there's, you know, that sort of zen like quality where you're just immersed in what it is you're doing and what it is you're designing and working on. Uh, with publishing, it's very different. I um, mean, you're constantly, you know, there's, there's email threads going back and forth with shipping companies and, um, you know, distributors and, uh, customers and trade shows and, and all those different things that you have to, to, to do. And it's, it's a, a much more collaborative, um, type of, of working environment. And it actually gets me out there. Uh, talking to people, whereas a game designer outside of playtesting, you're really kind of in your own little world working and, and refining and designing. Um, so it's, they're, they're very different. And I think 
at least for me, they tend to complement each other pretty well. I think for some other people, and I certainly, I, you know, it, it makes perfect sense to me that a lot of game designers are software engineers. Um, it's a very, very similar feel to that sort of thing. You know, I don't do coding anymore. I went, originally went to school for uh, computer science, but I changed to marketing at some point. So for me, I already have kind of that, that feel of, I know what it would be like to be in that world and kind of gives me a little bit of that, which is kind of neat. I'm going to switch gears a bit here, but thank you for uh, putting up with my curiosity. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, We've gotten to know Ted and and his little bit of his background, but the real reason Ted's here is we're going to talk about Suburbia Inc., which a little setup is going to be the fairly extensive expansion for Suburbia, if I'm correct, right? Yes, yes, it is. It's a it's a huge expansion for Suburbia. Ted was gracious enough to say, "Hey, I'll I'll take one of your spots that you're looking to fill for uh, while you're at Gen Con." And I can talk about Suburbia Inc. And I jumped at the chance because, unfortunately, like I told you on Twitter, I haven't played Suburbia yet, but it's sitting in my living room waiting to be played. And that's actually a fairly big honor in this house because my fiance doesn't put up with me keeping too many games upstairs. (laughs) So I get a limited amount of things that I can keep up here and go, uh, uh, should we play? And wow. Sub- Suburbia is actually on the top of the pile right now. Oh, well, thank- I'm honored. That's awesome. Of course, we got to point out that it was a uh, 2013 Mensa Select Award winner, which is awesome. Yeah, I was I was extremely excited. I was very surprised, but very excited about that. And uh, just to let you know, I mean, uh, I'm part of uh, a group here that we call the Rochester Gamers Community, our, our local basically gaming community, and they do... Uh, they're doing bi-monthly events now, and I the last two events I've seen Suburbia on the table, and unfortunately, obviously, I haven't been able to go over and play it because I was running stuff, and by the time my thing got done, I walked over, I was like, ah, I missed it, you already started. But you know, I, I I'm seeing it around as well uh, in our local local community here. That's great. So Ted's like, hey, you want me to talk to you about the expansion? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so Suburbia Inc. What do you got for us, sir? Okay, so, you know, as I was developing Suburbia, um, you know, there are a lot of ideas that were there that were thrown out for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, one of them, maybe very obviously, was that you can only ship the the game with so many different types of buildings. Uh, You know, Suburbia is, you know, the the core excitement I think people have with Suburbia is there are dozens of different types of buildings. And as you build your little borough as part of this bigger metropolis, um, it kind of takes on a life and a personality of its own. And, um, you know, it's by the end of the game, a lot of people will, they'll look at their, their things and they'll go, you know, I just built Detroit and, or I just built, um, you know, Berkeley, California or wherever it is that they, they built because they can associate some of the different sorts of things, you know, like I have three airports. So this is the, the New York metropolitan area up here, uh, whatever it is. And it's, it's really interesting and it's fun. And I think it adds a lot to the, to the gaming experience because, it makes you feel like, you know, you've really created something that has some meaning, um, at, you know, at the end of the game. It is, yes, about victory points. It's about who has the highest score, but you've also created something that you're, you know, proud of in some ways, um, or, or embarrassed about, you know, if you have the, uh, I think someone had just commented that they, they built a trailer park next to a stadium. So they had NASCAR. And I thought that's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, you know, it's, it, they put those sorts of things together and you come up with like, ah, this is, this is what I've done here. I can't believe I've built this, you know, like my hometown, except, you know, my hometown had, run out of money in the 70s and everything had been falling apart. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, so with Suburbia Inc., um, there's a ton 
of new buildings. There's, uh, you know, more than a dozen new individual types of buildings. And there's, of course, multiple copies of those buildings that kind of add to that, you know, that lore that you're building with your, your borough. And they all have new abilities. They all do different exciting things. My personal favorite of those is, uh, called the law office. Well, one of my personal favorites is the law office. And, uh, uh, in suburbia itself, at the end of the game, you may or may not get points for achieving certain goals. And those goals, um, you know, they're, they're pretty brutal in that only one person may win them. If you tie someone else for the criteria on the goal, uh, nobody gets the points for that goal. So you have to be the, the outright winner of that goal in order to get those points. And, uh, so what the law office does, it basically, you know, it's the fine print that says, you know what, even though I tied, I still get the points, <laughs> but it's only for one goal. So e- each law office you have gives you that ability for one goal and you can put an investment marker on your law office, which doubles it and uh, lets you do that for two goals. And, uh, it's, it's a fairly expensive tile that comes up in the first stack. So you have to be thinking ahead and go, you know, do I want to invest in this now where it's not going to help my city that much, but at the end game, you know, it could, it could be the difference between winning and losing possibly because it's going to give me this little advantage. And so there's a whole bunch of tiles that are in there that are like that, that kind of build on what the the game itself has. And so that, that's the building tiles. That's, that's one part. There's also a, a totally new type of tile called border tiles. And these border tiles are used to define the edges of the borough that you're, you're building. And, uh, one of the edges of those borough tiles is flat where the other edge has notches where your hexes fit. And so, uh, as you place them down, you're actually constraining the size of your borough, um, based on that, the location of where you, you play this borough tile. And, uh, you know, that seems bad, except for the fact that the borough tiles tend to be a much better, uh, return on investment than a regular tile. So while a regular tile is wide open and lets you continue to expand, these borough tiles give you a lot more for a lot less money, um, but they constrain where you can build. So it's a it's an interesting trade-off uh, that people now have. It's another option during their turn. Instead of just building a regular tile, they can build one of these borough tiles. And I, I think it, it adds to the... It, it takes it up a notch in terms of strategy, uh, a little bit away from the family game, a little bit more of a strategy game. Although I think people who are more family gamers, who are more of the Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, you know, people who like those games, if they've already played Suburbia, going to Suburbia Inc. won't be a big jump for them. It's just a nudge upward in that direction. A few other things in the expansion, there's uh, new things called bonuses and challenges. Bonuses are on top of the B stack of tiles, and challenges are on top of the C stack of tiles. And there's there's three stacks of tiles in the game, A, B, and C, that you go through in order, uh, and the tiles get uh, more expensive and more valuable as you go through the game. And once you complete the A stack, now you have this thing on top of the B stack called a bonus tile. And if it's got a, a certain criteria on there, that will award bonus, a, a bonus of income to any player that achieves it. And unlike goals, where it's only one player can win, these bonuses are given to anybody who meets the criteria. So for instance, it may say, if you have three residential tiles in your borough, you get an additional two income. And uh, anyone can get that, but they they have to have three residential tiles by the end of that A stack in order to get that. So it kind of pushes you in a certain direction if you want that bonus. And uh, usually there aren't enough, if it's tile-based or some other type of criteria, not everybody can get that because there are limited numbers of each of those uh, resources. And uh, so, you know, you can either decide you're going to dig in and go for that to get that bonus, or you're going to take advantage of other people doing that and get other things more cheaply than you might be able to otherwise if they weren't. That adds yet another little layer, kind of a mid-game goals 
um, if you will, um, uh, to the game. And there's a few other little things that were added there, but uh, all in all, it's just it's it's a a big chunk of extra stuff for the game that really kind of broadens what it does and just gives you a more varied playing experience. I think you kind of gave me a uh, selling point there. My fiance is a lawyer, so uh, I, I can let I can let her know that the uh, law office is coming in. It's a pretty decent, uh, pretty decent piece to own in the game. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's what it's it's funny. My my wife actually, as we were playtesting, we you know we do hundreds of playtests of two player games. Myself and my wife. I think in the month of January, when the game was close to finalized, uh, we played two games every night. Of the expansion, you know, we've kind of forced in the expansion tiles. We played two games as we we're kind of tweaking the values and, and doing different things. And uh, for a while, I'd say for about two weeks, she would either always take the law office or she would el- basically eliminate. She can, you can turn a tile into a lake um, during the game, which prevents anyone else from getting it. And she would do that. And she was pretty much obsessed with it for a while. And, uh, you know, we we tuned it so that it wouldn't be. Uh, and an absolute must buy, but still she went against what she should do and still bought it every single time because she just loved that idea that she was in control of, uh, being able to get these, these goals at the end of the game. And in a two player game, it's actually even more valuable, which is one of the reasons she was doing that, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, the law office is very, very interesting. If I'm understanding what some of what I heard correctly, a lot of what's in Suburbia Inc. was kind of developed, uh, alongside some of the suburbia stuff? I wouldn't say developed. I'd say designed. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's ideas. There's, there's a whole bunch of things. Like I said, I couldn't put in the game and certainly borders was, was one of those and borders. They look different and they act a little different than when they were originally designed. They kind of got developed into what they are now. But, uh, that concept has been there way before suburbia was out. Um, you know, there's a bunch of other things like that that I have kind of off to the side that you know, didn't make sense for this expansion that maybe might work in a future expansion. But the same thing with the buildings, you know, there's, there's dozens of different buildings that have special abilities that would make sense, but not right now. Um, and, uh, certainly not with the base game. So a lot of those were there. And then, you know, once the game was published, then I would say, I think it was probably even October that I really started focusing on what is going to make it into this expansion and what's going to be you know, a compelling set of functionality that's going to just take Serbia up one notch from where it is right now. I know I've seen a few comments about adding in a fifth player from from people that like the game. Is that something that you might consider in the future, or are you looking at it all? Um, you know, it was actually it was on the short list for this expansion. It didn't make it in for a couple of reasons. Uh, the number one reason it didn't make it in, uh, to be blunt, was cost. You know, adding in a fifth player required a redo of uh, one of the big boards in the, game, the real estate market board. It required a whole bunch of additional base tiles um, in order to make it work. It, uh, of course, required additional bits, you know, wood bits as well as cardboard bits for that player. And a lot of uh, rules tweaks that were specific to five player, um, you know, things that when working, you know, developing it as a one, two, three or four player game, you didn't have to worry about that actually became more important with five players. And you know, all of those things together, uh, it, it by itself was um, kind of overshadowing uh, at least the amount of work that was there. And it would have made the expansion cost almost as much as the base game, probably, which is ridiculous. So it was one of those things that at this point, you know, until there's something else that makes sense in expansion um, to make changes to some of those components, that it doesn't make sense to have a fifth player. You know, it, it worked. There are a lot of play tests we did with five players. People had a lot of fun. But I think the the cost, invo- as well as the additional changes, rule changes, and 
um, you know, kind of little fiddly things like, okay, well, if you're playing with fifth players, then this, this happens, you know, as opposed to two, one, two, three, and four, it never happened. A lot of those things got together and it was just, we decided that, you know, this, it didn't make sense. And also, I think part of it is I'm not hearing a lot. There's not a ton of people that are going, wow, if Serbia only had five players, that's when we would pick up a copy or then we would play it much more often. Um, you know, I know for me as a gamer, I love having the flexibility of a game that has, you know, two, three, four, and five players. But at the same time, I also realize that some games are better at other player counts. And, uh, you know, we really worked to make sure that Suburbia was polished and really worked well for uh, two, three, and four players. And, uh, you know, I think we achieved that. And I'm really happy with that. I think if we had gone to five players, um, the development cycle would have been longer. And it might have taken away a little bit from uh, the four-player uh, game or even a two- or three-player game as well. I know you talked about uh, having to that you like to make games pretty and stuff, even if you have to ditch that eventually <laughs> looking at suburbia, just, I mean, in, in general, seeing it on the table, just looking through the components, it has a very unique look and feel. Was that from the beginning or did that change along the way as well? A lot of it changed. You know, I put a designer diary up on working geek that actually shows some of the evolution of some of those tiles. Um, the original top that I did, in comparison to what Clemens Brands of Lookout did, I mean, my stuff's really ugly. His is, is much more refined. One thing that did get held over is I had hired a graphic designer to do the isometric buildings that are on the tiles. And uh, part of that was done in that even in playtesting, um, people weren't getting the sense that they were really building something because they just had tiles with numbers and things on them. And that was missing. And so, you know, I hired a guy to, to come up with those and I needed them to be simple. But at the same time, really convey, you know, this is a skyscraper and this is a stadium and this is a suburban residential neighborhood. And so he did that. And we ended up using that artwork as kind of the background for the tile. But the overall graphic design for the tile came from uh, Clemens France, who, of course, did Agricola and, you know, a lot of the other lookout games as well as a bunch of other games. And so it, it ended up, you know, being kind of a, a unique thing. I think partly because Clemens tends to do more of the medieval, you know, 18th century style artwork and, uh, not the modern stuff. And so I think for him, this was, was different to do something that's more modern. And, uh, you know, in general, I mean, you know, the majority of board games that are out there, you know, that aren't sci-fi don't tend to be, you know, as current. They tend to be sometime in the past. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think a, a unique art style for this, but overall, I'm really happy with it. You know, I think. There's some things that, as I look back, I might want to tweaked or changed, but overall, I think it, it ended up working pretty good. Are you going to have uh, Suburbia Inc. at Gen Con then, I assume? Yeah, so this is the, what's going to happen is uh, the game itself won't be available for purchase uh, there. We won't have copies there, but uh, we will be showing it. We'll, people will be able to sit down and play. And uh, also, uh, we'll have some sort of, I don't know what the details are right now, but uh, you know, in, a, in three weeks or so, when Gen Con comes around, we'll have it. We'll have a deal that um, both, both a discount if you just order the, the, uh, expansion or if you order both Suburbia, which we will have those games on hand, uh, and the expansion together, there'll be a, a discount as well. So you can get a special deal if you pre-order it. And then you'll be first in line when it's, when it, uh, uh, eventually ships. It'll actually ship in October. Do you have your own booth? Are you sharing a booth this year? Yeah, we have our own booth. It's booth 562. It's, uh, you know, this is again, the first time that we've had a booth at Gen Con and I have not been back to Gen Con since I went, uh, back in 2005 to show off my, my game. So I have not been out there since then. Um, so I, I don't even remember what the hall halls looked like or how it changed, uh, since then. So we'll see. Yeah. It'll, it'll be an experience. 
myself and my co-host Jordan will be out there, so we will try to stop by and say hello. That'll be great. So is there anything uh, you would like to leave with our listeners? This, Suburbia Inc., anything that you want to uh, wrap up with here? Well, sure. While we're talking here, uh, we're also going to be showing off uh, Ultimate World Inquisition, which uh, just came out and actually sold out at Origins like in the first half hour of the show. And uh, the designer for that, Legend Dan Hoffman, he'll be at our booth throughout the show. He'll be uh, showing off the game and signing copies and playing with people. Um, I would, first of all, warn people that he's always a werewolf. Never trust him. And uh, <laughs> second of all, um, you know, it's even if you have played werewolf and you don't care for it because of the elimination or because it's too much of, you know, more of an, people consider it more of an activity than a game. Inquisition is not that it's a, it still has the, the hidden roles thing, but it's, it's, it's a game. And, uh, there's a, you know, the guys on board game geek just did a game night, um, playthrough of it, which is great. You can, you can watch that to get a feel for, for how it plays. But, um, yeah, we'll have pl- hopefully plenty of copies there this time. We won't run out as quickly. Um, and, uh, definitely give that a look. Are you guys going to do any, uh, ultimate werewolf, uh, hallway, hallway style, like a lot of the werewolf games do at Gen Con? Uh, we aren't doing anything official, but, um, you know, uh, from what I hear, there are, there are always werewolf games going on. And, uh, you know, for the most part, at most cons, ultimate werewolf seems to be the, the version that people use. So I would expect that's there. And we'll have copies, of course, of that at the booth too. So you guys aren't going to uh ninja hallway event? No. no for Ultimate Werewolf? That's planned this year. <laughs> Cuz I think most of those in the hallway are are unofficial just but usually just fans doing it. All right, yeah. that'd be cool. Hopefully I see uh, one of those going. We uh we plan to have both recording audio and video recording equipment with us. So if I see one in the uh, hallway, I'll have to uh see if everybody's all right with me recording part of it. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. That's always fun. All right. Well, Ted, thanks a lot for hanging out with me. This has been a very fun, very fast hour. <laughs> sure, Jeff. It was great. Thanks for inviting me. So, Suburbia Inc., you can check it out at Gen Con, and you can pre-order it at Gen Con, if I heard that right, correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, for a discount and to be uh, head of the line, and then it should be out sometime in October. My mission between now and then before I shake Ted's hand at Gen Con is to hopefully have played it and uh, hopefully get my fiance to play it with me here, see what she thinks as well, so I can butter her up with the law office coming down the pipe. <laughs> and, of course, as always, I'll throw some links in the show notes if you want to see uh, what Ted's got going on. He's got BezierGames.com. Okay, throw that in the show notes. Uh, go check out the site. Check out some of the stuff that Ted's got on, on Board Game Geek. Like I say, he's got some designer diaries up there. Again, thanks a lot, sir. Thank you. It was great. I've got a hundred thousand comics carefully collected, and all the action figures for them carefully selected. The posters and promotions for each superhero movie. My ringtone's Frank Burger and Ash saying, I've got each permutation of the Xbox and PlayStation. My anime collection is the finest in the nation.